Welcome to the Community Christian Anywhere podcast of Sunday Messages. We're currently in the series, Jesus Stories. The series is looking at interactions he has with people on his way to the cross, his tomb, and his resurrection. We're learning from him how to live an interactive life with him and his kingdom. Today we get to hear from Nathan Martin as we hear about God's love for everyone. Let's listen together as the scriptures read. A reading from the life of Jesus as told by one of his closest followers, Matthew. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word, so his disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Nathan, and I'm on staff here at the church. And uh, if you don't know about me, I have... Four daughters uh, who all love chicken nuggets. And so uh, regularly we'll be on the way home from somewhere. And they'll ask that proverbial kids question that everyone always hears. Uh, Dad, can we stop by McDonald's on the way home? And of course, uh, one of my daughters knows and is smart enough to know that if she'd ask for Popeyes, the answer is always yes. But my other daughters haven't figured this out yet. And so they still ask for McDonald's every time we go. And the problem is they ask this question over and over again, which basically turns me into nothing more than a living meme like this one right here. Can we have food at home? We have food at home. And that's the food we have at home. And uh, I understand that. I understand that I was there too. But then they start crying out about this. You know, they start revolting as if I were somehow the overseer of an orphanage in a Charles Dickens novel. They're like, this is so unfair. How can you not get us chicken nuggets? And then I, like every good parent, have to respond back. You think you had it tough. When I was a kid, we had these little things, these little packages, and you'd open them up, and they were Ritz crackers, basically, that you put spaghetti sauce or ketchup on top of and the thickest shreds of mozzarella cheese that you could choke on we put them on top we called it pizza and we liked it (laughs) and there is no law that i have to stop for chicken nuggies every time you want it the only reason you think i'm being unfair is not even because you think every parent stops for chicken nuggets on the way home You think I'm an unfair dad because you know I actually am the kind of dad that is pretty easily persuaded into stopping for chicken nuggets at home. And what you're actually doing is using my character against me. You're actually using my behavior as this kind of precedent, this legal precedent you think you can hold over my head to get me to do what you think you think think should happen. Now, believe it or not, I'm not just talking about chicken nuggets for today. I actually think that's a little bit of what goes on within us when we read the Jesus story we just read. We're in a series uh, since the beginning of the year where we're studying the life of Jesus through this interactive lens, uh, this lens called interactive life with God, that we're saying Jesus did not simply come that you could have a new moral code to live by because you just weren't living by a good enough moral code. 
or even that you could have some kind of better private spiritual interaction or experience with God. That what God is interested in is he wants a relationship with you, an interactive life that affects every part of how you live and move and breathe. Changes how you interact with the people in your life, how you think about everything, about the world around you. But then you read a story like we do today and we think, how does this fit into anything? Especially when you see Jesus referring to a woman of a different nationality, a different ethnicity, as a dog. It feels racist. And maybe you've even seen videos online where someone says, did you know Jesus was racist? And then they pull out this story and they bring out this whole thing. And you start to freak out and you start to wonder, is that true? And I got to admit, part of the reason why is because the church, and primarily I'd say the American church, and more specifically the white American church, has done a terrible job in dealing with the issue of race in our country. As author Jamar Tisby put in his book, The Color of Compromise, there were enough Christians in the country during the time of slavery and Jim Crow, that if just the Christians in the country would have done what Jesus said, it would not have become an issue in our world. But by and large, the white American church has either been completely silent on this issue or complicit in the problem, contributing to the problem. And so we have to address this. And I feel a little silly having to say this part out loud, but I feel like someone needs to say it. No, Jesus is not racist. But you have to say it. He's not in this situation either. But I think before we get to this particular situation, we have to understand, as I said in my previous story, the character of who Jesus is and why this stands out is so shocking to us. First, Jesus created all humanity. That means every ethnicity. That means every skin tone, every complexion, every accent, every language, every culture. All of us are made in the image of God. And there are differences that you look at in every ethnicity, in every culture. Those things should be valued and honored. But race is a social construct. There is only one race, children of God. Therefore, racism, whether it is personal or whether it is systemic, it is something that's caught up in our culture or in our laws, it is sin. The idea of dividing or disadvantaging, or hating, or oppressing any human being is sin. It is, in fact, demonic. It comes from the evil one. It is our enemy trying to take the beauty and the diversity of God's creation and trying to use that beauty and diversity to turn us against one another, stealing and killing and destroying every good thing that God has created. In our country... Speaking out against racism is mostly something we tip our hat to. We just say, you know, being racist is bad. Don't be racist. And then we don't want to talk about anything else, certainly anything that's too specific, probably because of the specific history of our country. From the stolen land of the Native Americans that we live on to the importation of African slaves to our troubling history with immigration in this country, we don't want to talk about. It's tense in this room right now. <laughs> and so still to this day, to this day, because we don't talk about it. 
We allow systems of injustice and oppression to exist in our laws and in our culture. And because of that, there are prejudices and there are biases that all of us hold within our heart, but we don't speak about those either. And it was not much different in Jesus' day. You see, when we ask, is Jesus racist, we're really putting the question into our terms. We're putting into our specific country's history, which is primarily when we think of racism, we think of white and black and everything in between. But in Jesus' day, racism was not defined by white and black. In fact, this is a side note, but I think it's a fairly important one. Though God is spirit, so God does not have an ethnicity, when God became flesh and blood, when he was Jesus, he did. He became a very specific ethnicity, a Palestinian Jewish man. And so often in our country, when we think of racism, and you hear a white man talk about racism, and is Jesus racist, and we have all these pictures of a blue, you know, blue-eyed, blonde-haired Jesus, I think it's important to say, if Jesus is racist, that's bad news for me. <laughs> it's bad news for me. It's bad news for all of us. But as anyone who faithfully and thoughtfully reads the life of Jesus, you can see there is no favoritism, there is no racism in Jesus. The primary, what we might call racial divide for Jesus' world was Jew and Gentile. It was this ethnic and religious and national identity kind of all woven together into these titles, Jew and Gentile. It was basically Jesus' people and everybody else. And it would be impossible to read the life of Jesus and not see that Jesus was this counter-cultural Jewish man who had counter-cultural love for Gentiles. Unlike other Jewish rabbis, he actually went and preached in Gentile towns. Jason told us a story a few weeks ago about a man that Jesus freed from demonic possession. He was a Gentile man. One of the most famous stories in the life of Jesus is his interaction with a Samaritan woman at a well. One of Jesus' most famous stories he tells, he makes the Samaritan man the hero of the story. Over and over again, Jesus praises the faith of people outside the nation of Israel. Next week, we're going to learn about one of those stories where he says two times, he says there are people who have great faith. One is the woman we read about today. The next is a Roman centurion that we're going to hear about next week. All of these stories have most likely already happened by the time Jesus meets this Canaanite woman. Most scholars believe this is probably happening somewhere around the last week or so of Jesus' life. In fact, I believe that's why this Canaanite woman feels confident to approach Jesus. She knows Jesus is not like the other Jewish men, not like the other Jewish rabbis. He loves Gentiles, which means he just might love her. And so she feels confident to approach him and beg him for a miracle. She had faith. And Jesus would later say at the end of this, she had great faith. Jesus was not only a man of great power, but he was a God of indescribable, unimaginable love for all people. She saw him for who he really was. So let's get back to the chicken nuggets for a minute. <laughs> the reason my kids seem so shocked and appalled that I would not stop and get them chicken nuggets is because I know I'm the kind of dad who loves to give good gifts like chicken nuggets to his kids. It, if I never stopped 
for chicken nuggets, they would never ask me. Because they would think, I ain't got a shot. Why am I asking this guy? They've never asked me for $250,000. <laughs> and I just ask for anything that comes to their head. Thinking the same way. When we read something in the life of Jesus and we are shocked to see something that appears racist coming out of the mouth of Jesus, it is not evidence that he is racist. It is fact is the fact that I am shocked that Jesus would say this that should make me lean into the fact. It's not an invitation to walk away because if he regularly treated Gentiles or people from another ethnicity this way, it would not be shocking to us. This woman wouldn't even think she had a shot of getting a miracle out of him. It is not an invitation to walk away. It's an invitation to lean in. Because even though we're all shocked to hear Jesus call this woman a dog, None of Jesus' original audience would have been. It was the common way, the common slur that Jews of their day referred to Gentiles. And Jesus, from their point of view, was the Jewish Messiah. He was here for the Jews. He was the king of the Jews. What they did not realize yet was, yes, he was the king of the Jews, but he was also the king of the whole world and all the peoples in the world. And just as the racism and prejudice that still exists in our country comes from our specific national history, the prejudice that the disciples and Jesus' original audience held, well, it came from their national history. This is what Jesus is actually doing here. He is trying to pull out those biases, pull out those prejudices so they can look at them, confront them, and then tear them down. The national identity of the people of Israel was really based around a story that could be summed up by these words from God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. From God calling Abraham to leading the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, to providing for them in the wilderness and giving them his loving commands, and even bringing them into a promised land by casting out the other nations that were there. God had proved he had chosen Israel as his people. They were different. They were better than every other nation and people group. They were God's people and no one else. Now this is not what God meant when he said, you are my chosen people and treasured possession. God's intention was not to establish Jewish supremacy over other nationalities. In fact, he regularly told them, do not take advantage of foreigners who live among you in your land. Treat them like native born Israelites and love them as you love yourself. He promised Abraham that all peoples or all nations on the earth would be blessed through him. And God told the people of Israel their blessing was for others. In the Psalms, the people of Israel are told, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us, so that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. The goal was always for all nations to know God. But there was a problem for the people of Israel. Often the nations they were called to be a light to were the same nations that oppressed them, enslaved them, or like the Canaanites, who the woman in our story belonged to were nations that the Israelites were constantly at war with. They began to see the foreigners and nations among them as enemies. They were God's chosen people, and these other people were just dogs. So when a Canaanite woman comes to Jesus and begins crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. The disciples are not interested in hearing her out. In fact, they won't even give her the dignity of speaking to her. Matthew records, so his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away for she keeps crying out after us. They talk about her as if she's not there. And Jesus responds, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Now this is the diplomatic answer Jesus is giving her here. Yes, it's true that Jesus' first priority was to restore the people of Israel 
to the true worship of God, to call them back to life in God's kingdom. He even told his disciples this when he sent them out to do ministry. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans, go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, the King of the Jews. He was the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel, so he began his ministry among the Jews. But as we already said, Jesus himself didn't always follow his own instructions, because you can't keep God in a box. Jesus regularly did ministry among the Gentiles, because he was not only the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel, but the promises God made through the prophet Isaiah about the Messiah. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Jesus is this Messiah, yes, the King of the Jews, but also the King of the whole world. As Jesus would say, it's because God so loved the world, not just Israel. God so loved all the nations and peoples of the world that he sent his son into the world. But the disciples can't see this yet because this doesn't fit the story they believed about themselves and their people and about God. They need to have their prejudice confronted. They need to have their eyes open, not just to see this woman, but to see Jesus. They need to see that the love of God was bigger than they could imagine yet. The love of God not only would speak to this Canaanite woman, but to what she asked of him. Interactive life with God was now available to this Gentile woman. How can this be? So just before the interaction that we had in our scripture reading for today, Matthew actually places just before it a different confrontation. This one is between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day, and he is confronting their preconceived ideas about what makes a person clean or acceptable, or maybe the word they would use is blessable before God. So the religious leaders ask Jesus, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Now, this is not them just saying, that's pretty grody, uh, that's bad hygiene. What they're saying is this is a religious ritual that the religious leaders believe kept you pure before God, that you were not clean, you were not able to have life with God if you were ceremonially unclean. But this was actually not something God commanded. It was a distortion that they had applied. It was a tradition that they had built up, these religious leaders, to determine who they could identify as clean and pure before God. Basically, they are trying to identify, who do I actually have to love? Who is actually blessable by God? Who is it that God is willing to interact with? And more importantly, who is he not willing to interact with? Jesus spends the beginning of Matthew 15 ripping this whole premise to shreds. He tells them, hey, it's not what goes into somebody's mouth that defiles them. It's actually what comes out of their mouth that defiles them. And what he says is, it's actually all the hatred you have stored up within you. It's the evil thoughts you have stored up within you. It's these things you're holding deep inside. And I think he's even trying to hint to them, maybe this little bit of religious prejudice you hold in that you are somehow better than everybody else because you follow the rules that you made up. So you're somehow better. It's that that defiles you. It's not eating unclean food that keeps you from life with God. It's about the evil you have stored up in your heart that keeps you from loving the people made in the image of God. That's what defiles you. And I think he's exposing one thing with the religious leaders. And I think with this woman, Jesus is actually trying to expose what some of that evil that gets stored up into your heart that you don't really talk about actually is. See, this woman has multiple things that makes her unclean 
or unblessable in the minds of the Jewish people. First, she's a woman and she is not behaving properly. She is not supposed to be going up to a Jewish rabbi and just starting a conversation on her own. That's, a, that's one strike right there. But the second strike is she is a Gentile woman. She has no right to be talking to Jesus. Strike two. And then she says she has a daughter who is possessed by a demon. In their day, there is no more sign that God is against you than somehow you are possessed by a demon. Strike three. This woman is clearly unblessable. She has no part in the people of God. She has no part in the blessings of God. How dare she even try to speak to Jesus? Why does she just know her place and stay in her place? Why is she even asking him for anything? And I think this is what Jesus is trying to expose when he says to her, you know, it's not right to take the children's bread and give it to dogs. I think Jesus' disciples in their own hearts might be amening a little bit here. Now, this is all speculation, but maybe through their travels in the Gentile towns, Jesus has heard them say things like this before. Maybe he's had other things more sinful than this, like the one time they want to burn down an entire town of Samaritans. Maybe like you and me, Jesus also grew up around sinful people who everyone just said was stuck in their ways. Maybe he also had an uncle who made a prejudiced comment and he didn't know what to do about it. Or they had a friend who made a joke and it crossed a racial line and it made you uncomfortable, but you didn't say anything about it. Maybe he'd heard racial slurs come out of the mouth of fine folk who just didn't know any better. Maybe Jesus had seen the Gentiles segregated in the temple, that they were unable to worship God like the Jewish people where they had their own spot they had to, or they had to live in different towns and different neighborhoods, like it happens in our world. And everyone just hears the refrain, well, that's just the way it is. That's the way it's always going to be. And here's Jesus saying that unspoken thing that good, clean, blessable, pure people store up in their hearts and they never say out loud, but they hold it deeply. And the woman somehow is completely undeterred. She seems confident that Jesus is still on her side, and so she kind of plays back with him. And she says, yes, it is, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Maybe all these other people think I'm a dog. Not you. I know you don't think that of me. You're the master. You're the Lord. You're the king. And what I know about you is that you are a good king. And you are a good Lord. And even dogs can get good things from a good king. And it's at that moment that Jesus says, Woman, you have great faith. And up to this point, he never said that about anybody he's dealt with. He says, So your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. Only two times that I've said that that happens, where Jesus is amazed by the faith of somebody. There's one time he's amazed by the lack of faith by people who are all Jewish, and he goes, I guess I can't do anything for you guys. I'm amazed at your lack of faith. But he says, this woman's faith is great, and next week we're going to hear about it. He's going to say, I found greater faith in this Roman centurion than all of Israel. Both times he says it, he says it to someone who is outside his ethnicity, outside his tribe, outside his nation. Jesus is amazed at her ability to see who he really is, to trust that he is a good and loving God, though somehow God's people have made it so difficult for her to ever find him. 
That's why I'm so amazed at the faith of the black church in our country. How their love of Jesus has not only survived, but thrived in a culture where the name of Jesus has so often been used by white churches to ignore or to even inflict suffering upon them. The ability to remain faithful to Jesus, to trust in his love, despite the hatred coming from his people. That is great faith. And I think this is what Jesus is praising in this woman. She has great faith. She actually sees something about Jesus the disciples are not able to see yet. That somehow he is not only the Messiah of Israel, he is the king of every nation, every ethnicity, every person in this world. The next few verses in this chapter are Jesus going out and he feeds 4,000 people. And I, often I'm in a group where we read the Gospels over and over and over again and people go, why is there a part where he feeds 5,000 people and there's a part where he feeds 4,000 people? Because when Jesus feeds the 4,000 people, he's feeding 4,000 Gentiles from Gentile towns that he's in just as he fed the crowd of 5,000 in Israel before this. And he is not feeding them crumbs from the table like they are dogs. He is treating them like they are children of God in Israel. And I wonder if the disciples have not gotten it yet, that this is bigger than Israel. It is bigger than the small box that you have tried to squeeze God into that somehow in our culture gets down to it's me and God and whatever happens with anyone else has nothing to do with me. It is bigger than that because even after Jesus' death and resurrection, this Jew Gentile ethnic divide, it is the thing that almost splits up the entire church and stops the movement dead in its tracks. The first big conflict is that the church is doing ministry and they're out doing ministry and they're feeding people, but it becomes clear that the Jewish men who are in charge of it, they are not feeding the Gentile widows like they are feeding the Jewish widows. And there's this whole movement where they have to decide what are we going to do about this? How are we actually going to handle this? Are we going to take Jesus? Seriously, for these Gentile widows are getting crumbs from the table and they remembered Jesus said that would not be so. So then Peter is called to the house of a Gentile man named Cornelius to baptize him. And, and he does not want to go to this, uh, this person who is ethnically different than him. It takes Jesus coming to Peter in a dream and being like, hey, idiot, do you still not see it? You've got to go. The Gentiles are invited into the kingdom too. Peter still then has to go to the guy's house and make a really uncomfortable scene because he's like, I'm a Jewish man. I've never been in a Gentile's person house. What's this food you serve? He's totally bogus on the whole thing. Then he finally gets there. And when he sees Cornelius and he hears his story, he finally then says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation and the word nation in the Bible can also be translated to ethnicity. Of every people, every ethnicity, the one who fears him and does what is right. And I think Jesus is looking at Peter going, now you realize? Now you realize this? Not after I came to you in a dream. Not after I died on the cross for the entire world. Not after I went to Gentile town after town, healing people and inviting them to the kingdom of God. Now you realize it. And then still after that moment, the church has to have this big conference to discuss whether or not Gentiles have to become more Jewish in order to be in the church. And specifically what they mean is you have to get circumcised. And they're arguing about, there's a major, major surgery on the line. 
And they are having discussions about this whole thing and they're having a fight about it. And finally, they get it. They go, hey, maybe God doesn't care about this Jew-Gentile thing. And these guys walked with Jesus for three years. They're the first people to see him die on the cross and rise again for the world. But it takes time. These stories and stereotypes that you've been taught your whole life. The biases and prejudices that you gathered from maybe personal experience or what other people have said to you. They hide deep within us. We cannot always see them. And I know this thing of racism and prejudice, we don't want to see it in the mirror. And so we hide behind things like, well, but my best friend is black. Or for some of us. My children are black. My grandchildren are black. You know, I was raised better than this. That's just a problem of the past. We moved past all of that. And we do not see the things that are hidden within us that keep us from loving and seeing people as God sees them. We do not see the ways that we are ignoring or even being complicit in the suffering of other people. And ultimately, it keeps us from seeing the fullness of who God is, the God who died for people from every nation, every ethnicity, every skin tone, every language. And as a church, it keeps us, it keeps us from being the light of the world. A different kind of kingdom, a faithful witness to a different kind of kingdom than in our world. You know, we often hear these words and it was kind of thrown around more a few years ago, this idea of xenophobia thrown around, this fear of the stranger, this fear of the foreigner, the fear of the other. It's the fear and often hatred of anyone who's different than me. But in the ancient world, Christians were somehow known by this term xenophilia. Phobia means fear. Philia means love. That they were known for their love of the stranger, their love of the foreigner. That they were the first people to walk across the line and say, hey, I care about you. I love you. Can I serve you? Can I be your friend? Christians are people who are moved to welcome those who are different from us, those who are in the minority, those who speak a different language than I did or grew up with a different experience than I did. It does not cause us to move away in fear or to despise. It moves us towards them because in welcoming the stranger, we learn in the scriptures, we welcome Christ. This is who we want to be as a community, a community of xenophilia, a community of people who seek out the person who is different from us because we are already foreigners and exiles in the kingdom of America. In the kingdom of God, we are all brothers and sisters. So we want to intentionally move towards those who are different from us. It's only when we are near the other, near the stranger, that we actually see What's hidden within us that I didn't know? It's only when I have a conversation and I say something I was not expecting to say and go, oh, no, I didn't know that was in there. Or I have a thought pop in my head and go, oh, I don't like that. It's only then that I can expose that to God and allow him to bring out within me the love of Jesus. Not because that's what good, tolerant, modern people do, but because this is what your God did for you. He who knew no sin became our sin 
for our sakes. He who is God, who is spirit, took on flesh and blood to dwell among us. And it's one of my favorite translations says, moved into the neighborhood. Chose to say, I'm going to live among you for our sake. So we too must dwell among those who are different from us for the sake of Christ who did this for us. That your cause would be my cause. Your pain would be my pain. Your joy would be my joy. Because together, and it is only together, that we become the multicolored, multi-ethnic, multi-generational, beloved community of God. It will be difficult. It will be uncomfortable. And it will reveal things about yourself that you do not want to see. But for the sake of love and for the sake of the God who loved you, would you be willing to see it? Because it will lead you towards Christ. So before we end, I've invited Ed to come and lead us to the cross for a time of repentance, reflection, and communion. Let's do that now. I know that this conversation is deep and hard and very difficult. It's difficult because the moment you begin to get an idea of what we're talking about, the spiritual forces that work against the good that God wants to do begin to help you rationalize why you don't need to listen, why this does not apply to you. It's difficult because you don't want to be honest with yourself. You're terrified to look at any potential prejudice that might be hiding in your heart. And certainly, you're afraid to talk about it in, in front of God, anybody else. We just want to assume, I know this problem exists. It just doesn't exist in me. I don't make any racial comments like that. I, I don't, I don't have a bias toward anybody of any color, nationality. I, I am not a part of the problem. But for the followers of the Christ in this room, here's what we know. Sin is not just the wrong I do. It's the good I choose not to do. It's the good that I allow the rationality to talk me out of doing. To keep me from moving times when I've seen and heard injustice and I silently prayed and did nothing else or I didn't even pray the division we see in our workplace or for the students in this room the words you hear and you say casually or the divisions that exist in your school and you are not the one to do anything the times we've been silent when we should have spoken up the ways we should have reached out and loved our neighbor as ourselves, but we chose, oh, this isn't my battle. Jesus is not calling the church just to avoid racism, but to move in love toward those that are different, to love the neighbors that he's placed around us, who are all around us, to love the people in the world that we know about, to be the people that love everyone always because the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. So, 
before we come to the table together today, we need an honest moment to talk to God about the wrong we've done and the good we've left undone. So I'm going to give you a moment to talk to him about that. table of God together to remember the mercy and grace forgiveness that's been poured out for us we need to confess our sin before God so we're going to use a prayer that's been around for generations from the book of common prayer it's going to be on the screen and when you see the words on the screen would you say the words in bold out loud most merciful God we confess that we have sinned against you thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us, forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Heavenly Father, there is true repentance for some in this room that we have not loved our neighbors, not just as you called us to love them, we have not loved them the way you every moment of every day love us. So we repent of the ways that we've allowed our culture to direct our hearts and our lives toward division. We repent of the ways that we've bought into politicizing this whole thing. We reject all forms of racism and white supremacy and nationalism that cause us to fear and divide and hate those that are made in your image. Have mercy on us. Help us to be a community where we move toward those who are different for us so we may become brothers and sisters. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Hey there. Thanks for stopping by to check out this message. If you've been feeling the call to take your next step in following Jesus, we're here to support you every step of the way. Feel free to reach out to us at community-christian.net or connect with us on any of our social media platforms. And hey, I'm super excited to share that we've got two amazing podcasts you might really enjoy. First up, there's Three Peas in a Pod, 
where three of our speakers dive deep into questions about the Bible and life. Then there's Not Great Parents, which is just perfect for us parents navigating the ups and downs of parenthood. Both of these podcasts release fresh episodes every week, so make sure to tune in and give them a listen.